0: All right, before we get started, we need to make sure we're in fellowship so we can get all those thoughts and distractions out of our head that's got us all clogged up from the day and focus on the Word tonight so we can be ready to take in some good doctrine this evening. So let's pray. I'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Father, we're indeed grateful for the grace that we have from you, for your goodness to us, that we neither earn, have earned or deserve all of the wonderful blessings that you provide for each of us. And Father, above all these blessings are our salvation, our relationship to you, and our privileged position as royal family. Father, we thank you that you've provided us your word to give us these instructions and to encourage us, give us a framework for thought, for doctrine, for life, Pray that we'd be challenged, encouraged, strengthened as we study this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're in Hebrews chapter 6, and we've been going through the warning passage section here. And just to, as a review, there's a serious warning here on the danger of spiritual dullness, the danger of regression, the danger that is a real danger to every single believer that if we are not careful, if we do not pay diligent attention to our spiritual life and our spiritual growth, then we can hit that slippery slope of carnality and just slide down into a, a, a pool of self-indulgence and carnality and just wipe out our spiritual life. But there is no loss of salvation. And people need to be reminded of these things because there are so many folks that are just caught up with the fact that there's something that they 've done something that some sin they 've committed uh, some act in their past that somehow continuously uh, interferes with their spiritual life first of all, we have to remember that no sin is unknown by the omniscience of God, therefore God in his omniscience knew every single sin that every human being would commit from eternity past he knew every single sin that you would commit throughout your entire life nothing misses his complete, and total knowledge. Second, therefore, no sin is overlooked by the justice of God. When God dealt with our sin on the cross, He didn't overlook any. You're not going to commit some sin, and God's going to go, oops, missed that one. Third, there's no sin that's too bad for the grace of God. See, I still haven't reviewed it, and I've got the misspelling here on the twos. No sin is too bad for the grace of God. No sin is too strong for the omnipotence of God. No, sin is too harsh not to be overcome by the love of God. So we have a perfect salvation, and it operates on grace. Now, there are consequences, though, to sin. Sometimes we can emphasize grace So much in one direction. There's grace for salvation. There's grace and forgiveness. God always deals with us in grace because he knows all of our faults, all of our failures, all of our sins. All of our sins are paid for on the cross. But there are consequences to failure in the Christian life. And consequences to failure in the Christian life is not contrary to grace. And that's what this illustration is all about in Hebrews 6, 7, and 8. So let's review this because this becomes a launching pad for a probably three or four week study on the dynamics of spiritual growth. For the earth, which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. Now, as I pointed out last time when we got into this, there's always somebody that comes along, and every time they see burning in the Scripture, they immediately think of the lake of fire. But you have to take time to understand these analogies. As one uh, writer, commentator, who dealt with a uh, parallel passage to this, commented because he has his master's degree in viticulture from uh, Texas A&M. So one of the problems we have today is we have a lot of, uh, pastors and theologians who have their degrees and their background in all kinds of different areas, and they don't have a clue how to grow anything. And yet in the Bible, you have illustration after illustration after illustration based on uh, agricultural, the agricultural lifestyle that was common to everybody uh, during the period of the writing of scripture everybody understood the cycles of growth and planting and harvest and what was involved in planting and and growing things and so these were common illustrations but if you're not familiar with that if your background is law then you may not understand the dynamics of of uh, of these illustrations if your background's theology if it's medicine and the reason i pointed out law is because it's just amazing how many theologians down through the centuries were initially lawyers. You know, we always give lawyers a bad rap. Well, but you, you, everybody from John Calvin to Hugo Grotius, who came up with a heretical view on the atonement, but he was also one of the lawyers who founded and grounded the whole, uh, all of international law, which we know today. I think... Uh, Many, If you've ever studied international law, if you're a lawyer, you would know who Hugo Grotius was. But he was a well known theologian coming out of the uh, Reformation period. John Nelson Darby was another lawyer, C.I. Schofield was another lawyer. I mean, just the, the, the theological landscape is is littered with lawyers who then became theologians. So it's a similar mindset. But if your training was in law, you're not a very good farmer, probably. So we have to understand these images. And the burning here, as I pointed out last time, quoting from a Roman writer named Pliny the Elder, who lived roughly during the period of the first century. I think he was, he was born around 20, around A.D. 20, died toward the end of the century. And he wrote a number of works. The only thing that we have that survived is his work on natural science. And in there he gives a lot of descriptions about agriculture, cultivation, viticulture. We'll see another quote from him later on uh, this evening. But he commented that this was a standard procedure that at the end of the harvest, when you have a lot of stubble left in the fields, that in order to get it ready for the planting the next year, you would burn off what was left in order to make the field more productive for the next year. So it's not a sign of judgment destruction, but it is a sign of more along the lines of divine discipline and preparation for uh, future growth. So we need to think about verse 8 in terms of divine discipline. Now last time I pointed out that each of these elements, each of these symbols in Hebrews 6, 7 to 8, are important in order to properly interpret the passage. The earth is the believer. The rain re- uh, represents the provision of God, the Word of God, plus the Holy Spirit. The herbs represent the production of good fruit. And the thorns and thistles, the thorns and briars, represent the production of evil sin and human good. And then there is a cultivator in the passage, someone who cultivates the earth, who works upon the believer to produce fruitfulness and this would be God. This is similar to the role God plays in John chapter fifteen, which is going to be the focus of our study uh, this evening. So this was where we went last time, and then we saw that in verse seven it talks about the fact that the if the soil bears thorns and thistles, it says it's rejected, rejection's a poor uh idea. It talks about judgment. As we looked at this, go through this slide, the illustration in this passage uh, relates to one of three judgments, Great White Throne, which is for unbelievers at the end of the millennium, the Tribulation Judgment at the end of the Tribulation, or the Bema Seat. And we have those at these different times. Look at the chart. Judgment Seat of Christ is the focus here with a secondary idea of discipline in, the, in time for the believer to make the believer more productive more fruitful the word translated rejected is the Greek word adakimas which means to be unapproved unqualified unworthy spurious or worthless if you notice there that doesn't list rejected as one of those words that's not the concept here it means it's no longer qualified and for what well, we would say qualified for rewards. This is the same thing that Paul uh, references when he talks about running the race. He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win, that is, win the prize, the reward. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They, that is, athletes, do it to receive a perishable wreath, usually a a reward related to a uh, wreath of uh, withered celery leaves or with our regular celery leaves or ivy. That was it. Initially, in the Olympic Games, there were no uh, pr- there, there wasn't any prize money. There weren't any of the other things that came along much later, privileges of citizenship, and a number of things that were true uh, in later years. But in the initial two or three centuries, all they got was this wreath. So they go through a year of training. They don't even get a T-shirt. They just get a wreath that is going to dry up and and be gone in a matter of weeks. So they discipline themselves so rigorously for for a perishable wreath. But we as believers are working, growing spiritually for the purpose of gaining rewards that will last for eternity. So if they're going to go to all that effort just to win the Super Bowl, just to win a Super Bowl ring, go to all that effort just to win the World Series. How much more should we as believers work when we are focused on rewards that are going to last for all of eternity? And then we looked at verse 27 where Paul said, referring to himself, he says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Same word. What's the point? The point is that if Paul can become disqualified, he's not losing his salvation. It would be a disqualification from uh, position, from rewards, from responsibility. So this is what this passage is talking about. It fits the framework of rewards, Second Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And the word there for judgment seat is the Greek word bema. This was a raised or elevated seat where the magistrate or tribunal would sit. And this is a picture in the background of the remains of the Uh, Bema seat in Corinth and there's Acrocorinth in the background but there's another Bema seat in the culture that fits the analogy better and that's the judgment seat at the races uh, we just got through talking about Paul wanting to run in a qualified manner so this was the uh, racetrack the stadia at uh, Delphi and there in the stands are the remains of the Bema seat. That was where the judges would sit in order to evaluate the contestants in the race. This is really more likely the background to understanding the Second Corinthians 5 reference to the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. To see who is qualified, who wins the race, who wins the prize. Now question that occurs is how do we do this we know that to enter into the race to use the analogy entering into the race would be analogous to salvation you have to put your faith alone in christ alone in order to get saved and once you're saved then you can enter into the qualification for the race run the race and either be qualified disqualified win the prize or not win rewards but entry into the team, as it were, or the ability to compete in the games, is salvation. But competition in the games is uh, like analogous to the post-salvation Christian life. So entry into the, onto the team is grace. But after that, it's based on works. Not in the sense that works of earning the approbation of God... But it takes discipline, effort, it takes decision making to stick with it, it takes perseverance and endurance to be in Bible class, to listen to tapes, to uh, make decisions that are consistent with the doctrine that we learn and not just take the easy way out, the easy path of our sin nature and say, well, I'll just confess it later and get back in fellowship, but to truly wrestle with the fact that we need to stay in fellowship. And the primary image that I see in the old in the New Testament of fruitfulness comes out of what Jesus taught the disciples the night before he went to the cross in the upper what's known as the upper room discourse, but actually John fifteen takes place as they left the upper room and began to proceed up the Kidron Valley over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And after they left the upper room Jesus begins to teach them more about what is to be, uh, what, what are to be the dynamics of the Christian life. Remember in John chapter 13, we have Jesus in the upper room with the 12 disciples. He comes in and he washes their feet as, a, as to teach the importance of ongoing cleansing in the Christian life. And then he sits down, they observe the Passover, in the midst of the Passover meal... He takes the sop and he dips it into the um, oil and solution there, uh, the vinegar, and he hands it to, uh, he says, the one I hand the sop to is the one who's going to betray me. And he hands that to Judas. And he's talking privately to Judas, the way they would lie around the table. Judas is to Jesus' left, and probably no one really understood what he was saying he said the one I give it to but he was going to give it to each one of them and so he handed it to Judas first and then he just in a private conversation said go and do what you need to do and Judas left and then they went on through the observance of the Lord's table and uh, after that he begins to announce that there's a, uh, he's going to leave and there's going to be a new dispensation and he's going to depart from them And there's going to be a new ethic, and that new ethic is that we are to love one another as Christ loved us. And then there's going to be a new comforter that's going to come, another comforter like him. It's the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to come. And then there's going to be a new dynamic for the Christian life, and that's John chapter 15. So that sets the stage. He has, as it were, already cleansed the group of the one unbeliever that was in the group, and that's Judas. And now Judas has left, and he is going to uh, the Jews and the Romans, and he is going to uh, betray uh, Christ. So while he is gone, then Jesus and the disciples sit there, and he begins to instruct them. And then they get up, and they leave, and on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he he sees the grapevines. Their grapevines grew along the valley there. Now there's graveyards on both sides of the valley, a Muslim graveyard on one side and a Jewish graveyard on the other side. The Muslims in the uh, 16th century built a large graveyard all along that side of the eastern wall by the eastern gate because they... Um, First, they boarded up, bricked in the eastern gate because the Jewish Messiah was supposed to return to the Temple Mount through the eastern gate. So, they bricked it up so that he couldn't come in. And then, of course, just to make sure that he couldn't come in, uh, they they made it a graveyard so no Jew would be able to come through the graveyard because they would be unclean. So that would uh, he wouldn't be able to go into the temple precinct. So they've got it all figured out how to keep Jesus from coming back so and then across on the other side on the, on the Mount of Olives side there's a Jewish cemetery and they, they bury the Jews in the Jewish cemetery uh, so that their feet all over, all over Israel maybe all over the world I'm not sure but all over Israel they bury them with their feet pointed to the temple so that when uh, the Messiah comes and they're resurrected they'll know which way to go to get to the temple don't we have just some really silly ideas about about death and things? It's just just remarkable. But that's that's the area where John 15 takes place. So turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 15, and we're going to go through go through our passage. Now remember, what I'm doing is we're looking at this parable. Over here are not parable, but this analogy that's developed in, in Hebrews that's talking about the fact that that compares the believer to earth to soil, and that that soil receives uh, the nourishment from God, and it's either going to produce uh, fruit that is profitable in, in that passage, it's herbs, useful for those by whom it is cultivated. Or it's going to produce thorns and briars. If it produces thorns and briars, then they're going to be burned and they're going to be judgment. Now, what we're trying to do is show that this imagery is not unique to that passage in Hebrews, but it fits in with the imagery in other fruit production passages related to the spiritual life. And we see the same kind of thing going on in John chapter 15. Let's just read... Let me just read through the first six verses so we understand the context. Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, I am the true vine. You can picture him standing there by that eastern wall of the temple, walking down the valley, the Kidron Valley, and seeing a vine there and picking up a, and just picking up the vine and then making the analogy. I forget who it was who, I think it was Doug Carn made the comment, one night we, we were sitting in the uh, restaurant, I think, at the hotel in Jerusalem, and, and a lot of people were asking questions about prophecy and where is Jesus going to come down, what's going to happen here, and what's going to happen there. And I just turned around. There's a huge play glass window behind me, and I said, well, he's going to come down over there, and this is what's going to happen there. And then he crosses over here, and there's the eastern gate. And it, who cares about PowerPoint? This was real-time information. Uh, Imagery there. So that's the way the Lord was. He was just using what was at hand in order to communicate uh, the principles that the disciples needed to learn about the spiritual life for the church age. So he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. See, that's the same imagery that we have over in Hebrews chapter 6. There's the one who does the cultivating, this is the farmer, but in that image, The ground is the believer. Here we're going to have a different image. The the believer here is going to be the branch. So I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire. See, we have that same fire imagery again. They're thrown into the fire and burned. So what is going on here? What is the Lord teaching in John John chapter uh, 15? Okay, let's look at the first verse. It begins, I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. This is um, one of seven famous statements of Jesus in the gospel of John that are called the I am statements Jesus makes seven of them John 6.35 Jesus said to them I am the bread of life he who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst And we see there Jesus is pictured as the one who provides life. In John 8.12, again, he spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. So he is the light of the world, the bread of life. John 8.58, and Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am, indicating that he was full deity. He was eternally existent. John 10.7, Jesus therefore said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And then in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And then in John 10.11, he moves from being the door to being the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Then John 11.25, I am the resurrection the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, Yet shall he live, so again and again, each of these i am statements when you put them together, they reveal the purpose, the character, the work of the lord jesus christ john fourteen six I am the way, the truth, and the life. no one can come to the Father but through me, and then we come to john fifteen one I am the true vine, so in this in each of these we get an image of something that Jesus Christ does, something related to his person and to his work. And here he is pictured as the vine that is the uh, intermediate source of nourishment. Everything ultimately goes to the Father, but the vine is the source of nourishment to the branches. And so if you study... Viticulture, you study vine, and there are many things that are true about a grapevine that are also true about a tomato vine. so some of you who are patio farmers or if you 've ever had a, a backyard garden may be able to make some uh, correlation here between a tomato plant and a tomato vine and a grapevine. There are some some similarities now, as we look at this, we have to understand the imagery. That, uh, that we find in these first six verses, the vine's a great vine. It's, the, it's found all along the Kidron Valley outside of Jerusalem. and as a, an aspect of God's creation, God sovereignly designed the vine so that it would fit certain pedagogical purposes. It didn't just just happen. One thing about the vine that we know is that the wood is virtually useless. A vine can grow and it can become quite thick, but the wood is useless. You're not going to take the wood and burn it in the fireplace for warmth. You don't want to cook with it. It's not going to uh, uh, provide a particularly uh, pleasant uh, taste for smoked meats. It's just basically useless. So it's useless for anything except producing Grapes. So this is a picture of the believer who is not good for anything except producing fruit, divine good that has eternal value. Now, as we look at the the whole aspect of planting a vine, it is the planting of the vine which is equivalent, or the are the actually the production of the of the shoot that goes out from the vine. Which is equivalent to salvation. The production of the shoot shows life, and it is it comes out of the vine, and it shows that, it, and that's that's the analogy uh, for salvation. Another thing we need to observe when we look at plants is that only a mature plant produces fruit. Now that's really important. You may not understand the implications of that, but you get all kinds of people who want to go around in the Christian life being fruit inspectors and they just don't understand how plants work. And a plant's a great, uh, a great uh, analogy for the Christian life because uh, they take a, what, uh, um, what are they called, beefsteak tomato. Beefsteak t- tomato takes about 100 days from the time you plant the seed until it starts producing, uh, producing fruit. There's a lot of growing that takes place a long time before there's any fruit production. First, it starts off as a little seed, and then that seed produces uh, some new life. and A little shoot comes out, and then it begins to grow, and you have to water it, and you have to provide the right kind of soil and nutrients, and you've got to go down to you know Home Depot or whatever your favorite gardener is you've got to get miracle grow and miracle grow soil and everything you need so that you can provide the right nourishment for that tomato plant to grow but it's still going to take 90 to 100 days before it starts producing fruit and there's a lot of things that can happen in that intervening period and if that plant dies, then there's no fruit production. So you can't come along and look at some believer and say, hmm, I don't see any fruit there. See, fruit comes in maturity. Growth precedes it. And that's really important to understand because your goal as a believer is to get through that growth stage. You may think, golly, I don't see a whole lot of fruit production in my life right now. You look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and you think... Come on, Holy Spirit, you're kind of slow on the job. I've been going to Bible class here for a while and trying to apply doctrine and grow, but it takes time. Only a mature plant produces fruit. So we must distinguish between fruit and the growth process, the production of leaves, the production of more, uh, more stems and branches, and the production of blossoms. All of that precedes the production of fruit. And then, last of all, the quality of the fruit is dependent upon the nourishment of the plant. If it hasn't had the right, uh, right nourishment, the right nutrients, enough water, then that can stunt the growth of the plant and stunt the fruit production. So all of those things are important. So Jesus begins... Uh, in verse 1 I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And then, verse 2 is where things start getting a little controversial. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Now, if you notice, as I just read that from the New King James, that's different from what I read earlier. I corrected the translation when I read it earlier because there's a lot of debate over whether that should be translated, he takes away or he lifts up. But we read, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up, is what it should read. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, let's look at this. This is a lot of fun. There are three types of branches in the passage. The first is, a non fruit bearing branch in 2a. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Okay, now what is that? Believer or unbeliever? Okay, second, you have a fruit bearing branch. Well, everybody's going to agree that the fruit bearing branch is a believer. And then third, there is a non abiding branch which is discarded into the fire in verse 6. Now, the problem that many interpreters have is they want to correlate the non abiding branch in verse 6 with the abiding branch, I mean, with the branch that doesn't produce fruit in verse 2. And that is a fatal interpretive mistake, and it's based on the fact that theologians need to be better farmers because their failure to understand plant growth and uh, the production of of grapes in viticulture, lies at the root of this. Uh, And I'll show you some uh, basis for why I say this as we go through the passage. So, Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Well, the first option that we looked at, uh, in terms of interpretive problems, option number one, unfruitful, means a professing but not a true believer. This is how, this is how it's it's the passage is interpreted. What I'm going to give you here is three different ways people try to understand this passage. Only one of them is right, but you need to understand what I'm talking about where the where the differences are. So there're those who come along and say unfruitful means a professing but not a true believer. So they are taken away. This is the branch that's unfruitful in verse 2. He's taken away because he's not genuinely or truly saved. Now, you know what I've said about that. Whenever you hear an adverb put in front of saved or faith, then you know that there's a problem because the Bible never qualifies the term uh, faith or salvation. Not never qualifies as true faith versus false faith. You never find that kind of terminology anywhere in the scriptures. This is the Lordship Salvation position and also the position of many Calvinists who hold to a what I would call a we'll call a lordship view of the fifth point. Remember uh, Calvinism is it operates on the five points of Calvinism tulip total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the P is perseverance of the saints. And there is a view of of, of perseverance of the saints that is where you get into the problem here. Now, that view states the following, that every true or genuine believer manifests works or fruit that is in keeping with regeneration. According to them, the only way you can know that you're saved, the only way you can test or examine uh, your faith to see if you're truly saved is by the works that you produce. One term that's used of this is experimental Calvinism. You can only know if you're saved by looking at your your fruit, your works. If you don't have the works that are in keeping with salvation, then you weren't truly or genuinely uh, saved. If you produce dead works or your life is still characterized by sin, according to this view, then you are not genuinely or truly saved. And you you hear this. People say this all the time. They'll look at somebody and they'll say, well, how could so-and-so be a Christian if they did that? Well, wait a minute. Let's go back to those initial principles. Was that that, the horrible, egregious sin that they did, was that unknown by the omniscience of God in eternity past? No, it was known by the Omniscience of God and eternity pass was the horrible sin that they committed did that somehow miss the justice of God at the cross? No, because God knew every sin, therefore his justice could deal with every sin. Was that sin too great for the uh, for the love of God or for the power of God? No, so we go back to those initial principles I went over at the beginning of the of the uh, of the lesson, and we realize that there's no sin that 's too great for the power of God and the grace of God and the work of Christ on the cross but this is the idea that if you produce certain dead works or you have certain sin that you weren't genuinely or truly saved so according to lordship salvation proponents it is possible to have a faith in Jesus that doesn't save that you can be self-deluded about your salvation you can say well when I was 10 years old I I walked the aisle at the Baptist church, or I um, got saved at Christian camp, or whatever it is, and I i thought I believed in Jesus, but, you know, I've had a lot of problems since then. I got involved in drugs. I was a rebellious teenager. I stole a few cars, got thrown in jail, whatever the story is, make up a good country western song, and... Uh, How do I know that I'm really saved? Maybe it was a false faith in Christ. And that's what they will say is, well, you didn't have a true faith in Christ. And I always think of one of the most egregious examples of this that I ever heard took place uh, several years back now, two or three years at least, when a fine Presbyterian pastor by the name of James Montgomery Boyce, who was the pastor of, I believe it was 10th Presbyterian Church in uh, Philadelphia, which was um, um, Donald Gray Barnhouse's old church. If you know Donald Gray Barnhouse, who wrote it, The Invisible, Invisible War, one of the finest books on spiritual warfare around. Fine dispensationalist, uh, premillennial, uh, was Barnhouse. Boyce was not. Boyce was a, a, a five point lordship salvation advocate. Well, he was dying, and he was on his deathbed, and everybody knew that death was imminent. And at the same time, uh, R.C. Sproul was conducting one of his Bible conferences with his Ligonier Ministries, and he was challenging everybody in the the group to continue to pray each night for Dr. Boyce that he would persevere in faithfulness to Christ until the end so that we would know that he was saved. Because if he renounced Christ, or rejected Christ, or fell into sin here at the end, then it would be a sign that he was not truly saved. And so every night he prayed uh, for Dr. Boyce, and at the end, uh, two or three nights into the conference, Dr. Boyce died. And he said, well, he never renounced his faith in Christ, so we know he was saved. See, in lordship salvation, you never know you're saved, just like a Roman Catholic. You can't ever know you're saved until you die, because you may renounce Christ, reject Christ, get involved in uh, long-term serious carnality, and that shows you weren't ever saved. Uh, John MacArthur, who pastors a large church out in Southern California, written numerous books. John MacArthur is the foremost pastoral proponent Today of Lordship Salvation, his books, The Gospel uh, According to Jesus, The Gospel According to Paul. Some of you have heard me tell this story that when Gospel According to Jesus first came out in the late 80s, a uh, bookstore owner in Irving, where I was pastoring, uh, had Dr. MacArthur come over and had a pastor's breakfast that morning and had Dr. MacArthur speak on uh, on the book. And he did in front road, front and center where Tommy Ice and myself And when uh, he was through, we said, well, do you know if you're saved? And he said, well, I'm about 99.5% sure I'm saved. Can you ever know if you're really saved? Truly, with beyond a shadow of a doubt, no, I can't. I mean, that's the problem with that position. But Scripture says these are written that you might know that you have eternal life. So the Scripture seemed to suggest that we can know with certainty and have an assurance of our salvation right here and now. But these folks come along and they say, well, the only way you can know you're saved is by the fruit that you produce. Whereas I would say the only reason you can know you're saved is because you know the promise of the Scriptures related to salvation and you put your faith in Christ and then you know you're saved because you did what the Scripture says. John 3.18 He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed and produced fruit. Right? Is that what it said? Wake up. No, that's not what it said. It said because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The only condition in the gospel of John for salvation is faith in Christ. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So John writes his gospel with a primary purpose of showing people how they can know that they have eternal life, and it's by believing on his name, believing in Christ. So while uh, lordship advocates uh, believe Christians can sin and that they can fall into uh, some level of carnality, they're not going to stay there. They're not going to renounce Christ, reject Christ, and that if they are true believers, they will persevere uh, until they die. Now, Over the years, I've done a lot of study on this, and I've read a lot of the different arguments, and where do you find the idea that people can have a non-saving faith? As a matter of fact, this came up just the other morning. I have a pastor study the last Monday of every month where we have a group of pastors come in, and we uh, go through Greek grammar and Bible study methods, exegetical skills, things like that, and they wanted to get me off the other morning on a lot of... Issues like this, and so we were talking about this, and it just so happens that it fits what we're teaching tonight. So I'm going over it again. The uh, assumption is that there are there's evidence in the Scripture of those who believed in Christ, but it wasn't a saving faith. Now, where would you go to prove that? Uh, John two. That's every time you read this in a theology, it always they always go to John chapter two. So turn with me to John chapter two. John 2:23, at the end of John 2, remember John 2 begins with the first of Jesus' signs that he did in Cana of Bethany, where he turned the water into wine. Then he goes on to Jerusalem, he goes to his first Passover there in Jerusalem, and when verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many what? What did they do? They believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did, okay? Now, the phrase there that's translated believed in his name, I've got transliterate it transliterated on the slide, is epistusan es ta anima. Epistusan is the aorist tense form of pistuo, the verb to believe, uh, pistuo. Ace is a preposition in, in, indicating direction or object, and taanima is the uh, accusative form of the noun for name. Now, the reason I put that up is because this is a phrase that is repeated over and over and over and over again in the Gospel of John related to salvation. What do you need to do? You need to believe on his name. And it uses this verb and this prepositional phrase again and again and again. In fact, if you go back into the Old Testament, in Genesis 15, 6, which we studied in the past, many times talking about Abraham and it says now Abraham had believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and what do you have in the Greek translation of the Septuagint? Pistuo ace. This Pistuo ace expresses the object of, of belief necessary necessary for salvation. So we have this group there and this is the same uh, let me skip ahead to this slide. John 3.18 was just a close another verse in close proximity where we have the uh, salvation formula. He who believes in him is not condemned. What's the Greek there? It's ha-pistuon, ace auton See, pistuon, it's, it's a different form here. It's a participial form of pistuo, Ace, same preposition, auton. This is a formula that you have all the way through the scriptures. He believes in Him. It's repeated again down later because he has not believed in the name. You have the same phraseology there. So this is the formula: anyone who believes in Him, pistuo Ace, is saved, right? So how can you say that these folks, back in John two twenty three, weren't really saved? Well, the reason that is given is because first of all, their faith was a watered down faith because it was based on signs. See, if it's based on miracles, it's not as rock-solid a faith as a faith it's not. That sounds good, but wait a minute. What about John 20, 31? These are written. What are the these? These what? These stories? No. If you look at John 20, 30, it's talking about the resurrection. It says, this sign which Jesus did. So that's your noun. And then it says in the next verse, but these, these what? These signs, going back to the noun subject of verse 30. These signs are written. So it goes on in John 10, 20, 30. That's the verse that says, but Jesus did many other signs, which we don't have time to write. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. So John wrote his gospel to outline... Seven signs Jesus did in his life that would demonstrate that he was the Messiah and that if you understood those signs, you could believe in him. Okay, so as far as John's concerned, belief based on a sign or a miracle is not an inadequate, impotent, diluted faith. It is a salvific faith. But what people do is they go to John 2.24... But Jesus did not commit himself to them. See, if they were really saved, truly saved, genuinely saved, true believers, Jesus would trust them. Now, I'm not going to embarrass anybody here, but how many of y'all would pick an automobile mechanic, or let's get a little more significant here. How many of y'all, at the moment that you need to have a quadruple bypass, would trust yourself to a cardiologist solely on the fact that he is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, frankly, I don't care where he's going to spend eternity as long as he spent a lot of time in time at the best medical school possible so that I come out of this thing alive. Same thing with my car. I don't care whether the guy's going to go to to paradise, whether he's looking for 70 virgins or whether he's a Jehovah's witness. Now Jehovah's Witnesses are pretty good for car mechanics because they're trying to work their way to heaven, so they're going to do an extra special uh, job on your on your car. So you really, you know, the point I'm making is that just because somebody's a believer doesn't mean they're trustworthy. They may just be a brand new believer and not have enough knowledge yet about the Christian life or the truth or anything else to have it have changed their life. They're just a brand new baby, and that's what these folks were. Remember he goes to the temple, he performs he's performed miracles, and many believed in his name. They're brand new baby believers, and they still are operating on that Jewish assumption that the Messiah is going to come with a political agenda and defeat the Roman Empire. And so they still want to use him on this on the basis of this false understanding of the of the role of the Messiah, so he's not going to entrust himself to them at all because they still want to use him to further their political agenda, even though they're saved. So this is a um, this passage just can't be used to say that they weren't saved. There's nothing in the passage that says that um, that they're not saved. Just because Jesus doesn't commit himself to them or entrust himself to them because he knew all men doesn't mean that they're not saved. It just means they're saved, but they're not trustworthy uh, at this at this point. Okay, that's the first option. What was the first option again? The first option was that they're not truly, genuinely saved. They ju- they're professing believers. That's the key word you see. They're a professing believer. Now, let me point something out here. There are a lot of professing Christians who aren't saved. What do I mean by that? Notice how I'm the, the, the words I'm using here. There's a lot of professing Christians. So you have uh, Church of Christ uh, folks who are getting saved because they had faith plus baptism. See, they profess that they're Christians, but they're not. You have. Roman Catholics who get saved by virtue of participating in the sacraments and every time they participate in the sacraments Jesus doles out a little more merit from the treasury of merit and they gradually get closer and closer but they never know when they finally arrive. You have other folks who were just born in North Ireland and so by virtue of the fact that they were born there they're a Christian or they're born to a Christian family in Lebanon or in, in uh, uh, an Arab Christian family and so they're a Christian but it may not mean that they ever even heard the gospel that they never put their faith alone in Christ alone so they are a professing Christian I don't have any doubt neither should you that there's such a thing as a professing Christian somebody who claims to be a Christian but they're as lost as they can possibly be but a professing Christian that terminology is radically different from a professing believer See, the term professing believer is someone who says, I believe, I profess that I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. See, that's a big difference. He's not just saying, hey, I'm a Christian, and he's not. He's saying, I claim, I make the claim that I put my trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. Now, if, he has, if somebody's truly put their trust in Christ alone for salvation, they're genuinely saved. That's the condition for salvation. There's no such thing as a, quote, professing believer. If they've believed, and they profess to believe, they're saved. There's not a, there's not a pseudo-faith there. And so we have to be careful how we utilize uh, this terminology. So these people are genuinely saved. They're not just making a... Uh, a false profession. They're not coming along. You'll, you'll also hear people say, "Well, there's a difference between a head belief and a heart belief." Okay, y'all ever heard that one before? A head belief and a heart belief. You, uh, but that's that's not biblical. I mean, what do you believe with? You believe with your volition and with your mentality. With your mentality, you understand the gospel, and with your volition, you choose to believe it. Does that take place in your heart, this physical organ in your chest? No. It takes place in your soul. Now, if you're, if you're making a distinction between uh, that, that you're using heart for a, uh, reference to your soul, then where's your soul? That's related to your head because your soul is in your head. So we believe with our mind. It is intellectual. You have to believe with the thought processes, the mentality of your soul. You have to understand that which you believe. If you don't understand what you claim to believe, how can you believe it? I mean, some of us did that back, you, you remember back when you were in ninth grade algebra or eleventh grade chemistry? You, you just, okay, I believe that I'll believe i write that down on a test, but you had no clue what that meant. At least I didn't. Uh, that's how I got through freshman chemistry in college. I just wrote down whatever they said. I just memorized it. I had no idea what it meant. See, you can't believe something that you don't understand. You may regurgitate it, but you can't believe it because belief means you understand it and you accept it as, as true. So that's the first option. The second option is the Armenian Arminian option, not Armenian. They don't live over in eastern Turkey. Armenians are those who uh, follow the theology of James Arminius, who was a Dutch, originally a Dutch Reformed theologian. He was uh, trained by uh, Theodore Beza, who was Calvin's successor and the systematizer of Calvin's theology. And then as he studied the word, he came to certain conclusions uh, that differed from Beza and Calvin with relation to uh, predestination, election, and, and uh, sec- uh, security. Although he never doubted the security of the believer. Some of his followers did. And so, the, but his followers are called Arminians, and they believe that you can lose your salvation. So, they interpret this passage as a loss of salvation, that the unfruitful branch is taken away, meaning it loses salvation. Well, I don't believe either of those two positions are what this is talking about. The third position is the one that uh, we will develop, and that is the view that unfruitful Christians are the ones who don't abide in Christ. And unfruitful Christians will experience divine discipline in time and lose rewards in eternity. And that's what John chapter fifteen is talking about is how to grow and mature as a believer so that you have a productive, fruitful spiritual life. and the key is to abide in Christ, John chapter, John fifteen. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. Okay, now the next key phrase that we have to look at, we just have a couple of minutes left, is very important for understanding the uh, passage is this phrase, In me, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. Now, there's two ways to understand this phrase, in me. Who's speaking? Jesus is speaking. Christ is speaking. So, many people think that in me is the same thing as Paul's later phrase, in Christ. Okay? I don't agree with that. I don't think that's right, based on usage in John. This uh, phrase, in me, is used about 16 times in the New Testament. And when the figure involves persons in the Godhead, it always speaks of a true and genuine relationship that is fellowship, not merely a positional reality. Now let's go up and put our chart in here. We have eternal realities and temporal realities. On the left side, we have a circle indicating our positional truth, our position in Christ. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone... You are entered into your position in Christ through the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, on a day-to-day basis, we're either in fellowship or we're not in fellowship, either filled with the Spirit or walking by the Spirit. And so we're in and out of fellowship. So fellowship has to do with our rapport with God. Positional reality has to do with a legal position Unrelated to rapport. Now, you can't talk about Jesus' relationship with the Father in terms of positional because he always has perfect rapport with the Father. And that's what this is talking about when we have this phraseology uh, in me. Jesus uses it in several passages. John 10, 38 uh, but if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. See, it's relational. It's fellowship. It's not talking about a legal position. It's talking about the actual uh, relational reality of the, uh, of the Father and the Son. John sixteen thirty three. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. See, if you're not abiding in him, you're not going to have peace if you're operating on carnality. So in this passage it's talking about a relationship or fellowship. In John seventeen, twenty one and twenty two, Jesus said that they may be all, all be one, even as the thou Father art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me so the in me is, is relational here and fellowship, and so Jesus is praying that believers will have that same rapport and fellowship with the Father that he has with the Father. So when we look at this, Don't make the mistake of thinking that in me is the same as in Christ. Remember, Paul's the one who uses the terminology in Christ, and Paul is the one who develops the doctrine of positional truth, and Paul doesn't get saved for about another five or six years, and he doesn't start writing for about another 15 to 20 years. So the terminology in Christ doesn't get developed yet. So in Christ as a positional reality wouldn't have made any sense to them but they did understand the relational reality and the fellowship of the son with the father because of the many things that jesus has said uh, up to this point so we'll stop there we just started every branch in me that's relational not positional positional would mean he was talking about salvation but here he's talking about relationship or fellowship and that is going to become the key to understanding the dynamics of spiritual growth in John 15. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study these things. Help us to uh, come to a better understanding of this passage, and its importance for our own spiritual life and growth, productiveness, and fruitfulness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.